Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 120 of the Headspace and Tommy podcast. Today, I have a discussion with Army veteran Kimberly Franco about suicide prevention and postvention. I do think it's important to, to know what's available out there because we don't necessarily need everybody to be trainers or we don't need everybody that's doing housing. There's so many things just when we identify gaps, that's where you make the most impact. Before we kick off the interview, I'd like to bring you a quick message from Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour, about an event that's coming up June 9th through the 15th. I'm Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. We want everyone to join us the second week of June for a week to change direction and the Change Direction Jam. Together, we're changing the culture of mental health. Events during the week can happen anywhere and everywhere. We're so excited to work with IBM to create this global discussion. Mark your calendar, register, and join us to Change Direction. Go to changedirection.org. That's changedirection.org to learn more. Here at Headspace and Timing, we'll be joining Given Hour during that week. The podcast episode that week will be with Dr. Van Dalen, and that week's blog post is going to focus on the campaign to change direction. Longtime listeners will know that our mission is to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health, and the campaign to change direction is doing exactly that. Make sure to check them out at changedirection.org. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast once again. And as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, I'm excited. My guest today, she and I have a lot of the same uh, training as far as uh, some of the the suicide prevention and resiliency training um, that uh, that you get from the Army. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Kimberly Franco to the show. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me on, Dwayne. Yeah, absolutely. It's always uh, good to have a conversation with like-minded individuals, uh, veterans, of course, but also uh, somebody as passionate as you are about suicide prevention and um, and resiliency and things like that. Uh, before we get into that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So I was, um, uh, you said I was a veteran, uh, did 23 years in the Army. Um, all of those were military police. So I did come in contact with a lot of people that were, that called 911 for crises. And um, in my 22nd year of military, my brother died by suicide. So that's when I kind of really leaned more towards um, the prevention efforts of suicide. And, and I requested that the Army let me retire early so that I could pursue full-time suicide prevention. I, it was a blessing that I was the first person that they signed off to say, yes, we'll let you rele release you early because I was prior enlisted and I owed, um, in order to retire as an officer, I had to give the army that 10 years. I didn't have that 10 years in, but they said, Hey, because we know what you're going to go do, we'll go ahead and let you get out early and, um, still retire as an officer. So that was a good thing. I walked right into suicide prevention full time. So I, I work for the army reserve component as a program manager. 
I, I manage their suicide prevention and their resiliency program. Um, for my command, it's a two-star uh, general command. And then um, in the course of my time with working with the Army Reserve, I realized that there was a big gap as far as um, postvention support. We were good at training, but we don't do the postvention very well. So uh, realizing that gap, I started One Common Bond as a way to reach out to families, military members as well, after they had a loss to suicide. And then we just basically grew because grief is grief. You go through different phases um, regardless of your type of grief. So now we offer it nationwide to any type of grief. Um, we support anyone that, that needs it. And that's through packages, uh, through training, and also through our website, just giving out information. Oh, that's really great. So um, one common bond is is the grief of loss, right? You know, it's this thing that that uniquely um, bonds all of us together, not just uh, service members, of course, um, but civilians as well. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of mental health professionals that listen to the show, but we also have a number of veterans that listen to the show. And, um, and you and I know what postvention is. Um, but, but maybe if you could explain a little bit about really what we're looking at suicide. Um, you know, prevention, of course, is not, you know, um, uh, preventing it from happening, intervention and then postvention. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the prevention, we're great on that. We do the training and everything. We have the intervention where we teach you through different um, methods, such as the assist training or the 4R training that's offered through One Common Bond, teaching you how to intervene. And then the postvention is how do you support a person if they've made an attempt, um, either made an attempt on their life and, and now they've gone through the process of getting into the hospital, they're seeing clinicians, and how do you reintegrate them back into the home and back into the unit and the military culture? Um, also, that postvention also um, could go to the higher level where if it's a soldier that dies by suicide, how are you going to support the family, the military members as they're also going through grief? Because, um, you know, we're connected. I, I think I'm more I'm closer to my military family than I am to my own blood because of those those bonds that we share through the, you know, our combat arms. So with that, you have soldiers there that are grieving the loss of one of their battle buddies and they can't just go do business as usual. So we need to make sure that we're focused on how do we handle the postvention after the suicide? How are we going to help them through the grief process so that they can become whole again and be able to be, um, you know, effective soldiers in the unit? Right. And in a lot of times that postvention is critical. Um, and many people have heard of, um, you know, suicide clusters or, or the contagion effect where, um, you know, one suicide and then maybe two or three happen very frequently. Uh, and postvention efforts are critical to, to keeping that from happening. You know, if, if one service member, say a, a, a respected squad leader takes their own life and then, you know, the other soldiers will look and say, well, if, if, if he or she couldn't handle it, you know, how could I? Um, so that postvention becomes intervention and it's almost, almost cyclic. Yeah, absolutely. We do. We do have, um, it was a big eye opener for me when I first started in this position where we had one, basically what you just described, a, a squad leader that died by suicide. The unit really did poorly on their postvention efforts. And then 30 days later, the young junior soldier that he had taken under his wing also died by suicide. So that was a real eye opener to us to say, hey, what what happened here? And then to go down and talk to the, the leadership and say, hey, what did you do after this first suicide happened? And they really didn't do a good job. You know, they vilified the NCO, said it was a sign of weakness and different things like that. So when you're as a leader, if that's the message you're putting out, then, you know, that's not what the soldiers need for their grief support. And then like this young um, soldier that was under his wings, he he just looked at up to that person as the only positive male role model he had in his life. And he also took his life. So um, in my command, whenever we have a suicide loss, the first thing I do is I reach out to the to the commanders and say, Hey, I'm here for you. And I, wherever they are, cause I have 31 different States that I cover, but wherever they're located, I fly there and I'm there to be the, one of the first voices that those soldiers hear when they come back to their, their battle assembly, um, because I do deal with reservists. So I want to make sure that they're doing the right thing after we have a loss. I and mean, this is challenging, especially with the, the guard and reserve and the air national guard, um, is the, um, uh, disjointed, uh, sort of connection that they have with each other, right? Uh, obviously a, um, an active military unit, you know, whatever branch of service you have, the chaplain there, you have, you know, support, you know, it, it, you're able to call everybody and say, get here in three hours and have a conversation about this. And, and it's challenging, especially with how, um, 
geographically disperse that the um, the the reserves and the guard are. I was having a conversation recently with a uh, young service member. He had just gotten to a unit that had redeployed. He was in Southeast Kansas, and they have um, people from you know four different states: Missouri, you know Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas. Um, and he said that unit endured something like fourteen or fifteen suicides within the first year that they were back. Um, and and it's and even he was lamenting how challenging it is um, when when you know when you're trying to get that information to such a geographically dispersed population. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're trying to hit in on through, through one common bond. I know I can do it through that venue. Um, the reserve component, they, they have to rely on basically the civilian sector. So we really need our, our civilian sector to be um, well-versed on what the military culture is like and the things that reserve is still with. So some of the issues I see is when my soldiers deploy and then they come back, you know, we go through that whole process of your medical, make sure, were you injured? Did anything happen? And, you know, they go through those meetings and, and, and briefings. Those soldiers just want to get home. So a lot of times if things happen mentally, they don't always disclose it because they're just like, hey, that's one extra thing that's going to be added to me getting home. So they don't talk about it. Then they get home and they may be, you know, in a, a celebration at the house and somebody pops open a bottle of champagne and then you, you got the soldiers just ducking under the table. And they don't realize those things that they have. Hey, there's something going on here that's not normal. But after they're out of the, you know, the, the military and they're, and they're back into their regular jobs, they don't really want to go back and say, Hey, these are the things I'm experiencing. And it's not really open to them to say, Hey, these are things I'm experiencing. So we do see a lot of reservists that will just deal with those issues on their own, start self-medicating, usually through drugs or alcohol. Um, or other risky type activities. And then they down, downward spiral to the point of, um, where they're in my lane and I'm receiving reports of suicidal ideations or gestures. And I think that's a great example of, um, you as a suicide prevention coordinator expert, me as a clinician, we're not usually going to come into contact with, um, the person in crisis on the first stage, right? Whereas, as you said, they spiral down and then they get to you or, um, they, they engage in a crisis. I, I often say that if I was a, a, a doctor, I'd be an emergency room doctor, right? You know, and, and it's always either imminently crisis, you know, during crisis or afterwards. Um, you and I are both, um, uh, applied suicide intervention skills training instructors. And, and that is a, a gatekeeper, um, training, um, that's aimed to support those individuals who are most likely to come in contact, police officers, uh, family members, um, clergy employers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I love um, is that we do get to train those gatekeepers and especially for reserve component, it's, it's even more vital that we, we have as many trained as possible. Um, part of what I, I like to do as an additional thing whenever I teach a class is to, to get them into the habit of looking up local resources. Uh, we're, it's good to have the 1-800 numbers. We have the crisis hotline number they can call, but we want them to start looking up things that address this, the main issues that we have. So the key factors that we're seeing are relationship issues and financial issues. So I tell them, Hey, look in your, in your city or the city where your soldiers live and find out who offers, you know, financial counseling, find out who gives relationship counseling or um, that does counseling for stressful type situations because they don't have the luxury of Fort that place, you know, the Bennings, the Braggs, the hoods, they don't have that. They're, they're in the middle of, um, you know, Temecula, California, without anybody around except for maybe the VA hospital. And what most people don't realize with the, the reserve component is they don't always qualify if they haven't had um, combat time or a certain number of active duty uh, duty time. So they're they're really relying on the civilian sector to get their counseling and their their treatment. Um, and they may or may not have medical coverage to be able to pay for that. So that's a big issue that we see within the reserve component is they don't have the coverage. A big issue I see with the active duty is that, yes, they have the coverage, but they have that stigma behind seeking care. And a lot of them just want to be that, you know, macho infantry. I've got my badges and stuff, and they don't want to go get care because it's seen as a sign of weakness to them. Um, it's, it's a good thing that now we're seeing that the culture is changing, and there's been a shift where you have a lot of high-ranking folks that are coming out and saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm in care right now, or hey, I suffer from depression. And it's okay to get care. So they're, they're doing more to help our soldiers out to get what they need so that they don't have that stigma around um, going out and seeking care. 
Now, I, I appreciate that identification of a couple of different gaps, and and especially with the the reserve and the guard component, um, they're not they're not small gaps. They're the kind of gaps that you can drive a, a semi truck through, right? And and again, this this misunderstanding of well, they're a veteran and they can get taken care of, um, and. And also to the idea of, well, of course, it's just combat. If you haven't been to combat, then you don't have these struggles. Um, and so it's really as much of a community awareness campaign um, as it is really trying to connect with the service members themselves. Right. And what, what I try to tell people when we, we cover suicide deaths on a calendar year. So all of 2018, we had 47 deaths in the reserve component. Uh, when you look at those numbers, less than 50% of those that died by suicide had any combat experience at all. So the people that are coming, a lot of soldiers are coming in the army with PTSD already because of, you know, the things that they've had to endure in their, their childhood and their upbringing. So we can't always equate PTSD to combat because it, it doesn't equate when you're looking at our suicide deaths and the people that are actually taking their lives. So it's important that we just build those resilience skills. Because we don't know what what people come to the table, you know, when they when they when they sign up, we don't know what they're bringing with them. Right, and and that's uh, you know, I, again, I often say is that you know, you you bring the baggage that you you had when you came in the military as much a running away from something as a running to something, um, and doing something with your life, and then the military often exacerbates that. It just kind of you know amplifies that. And if you were depressed as a kid, then it becomes you know even more significant um, when you're in the military, um, just because of the stressful occupation and, and things like that. Um, and then also you said really trying to focus at the local level. A, a, a colleague of mine says the suicide epidemic, which is nationwide and not just, you know, veterans, but it's a national problem, but it has to have a local solution, right? You, you cover a, a large portion of the United States. Um, and you know that, you know, that service member is going to be more effectively served by those people in their community because that's where they live and that's where they're at. Absolutely. Um, and not only in their community, but in their homes. So um, there's nothing that, that breaks my heart more than when I see a suicide report after the fact that has a family member that says, I knew there was things going on wrong, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know where to take them. Or I thought it was going to destroy his or her career if they seek help. So those are the things that we're trying to get at. But it's very difficult to get to family members because they don't always have time to come to our meetings or to come to the training. Um, and a lot of the families, we, they just, they're not as active in the, you know, within the military culture. So to try to get at the, within the home and then take that to the neighborhoods and then take that to the community is what I've, um, done through one common bond with the four R training. So that's our, our version of, um, an advanced suicide training to teach you um, the steps of suicide, you know, the asking the question and going through that whole process. But we spend a lot of time in the reinforcements and the resources section, which is uh, resources is finding out who's in your local community, find out who that who gives care. And the big thing is if, if there's a cost um, contributed to it, because a lot of times if there's a cost, you're just adding even more to their, to their issues. So I, I tell them to just look, look in the, your communities within churches or through given hour, different resources uh, that can give you care where you don't have to pay for it. And Military One Source is one one of those um, uh, resources that I think a lot of people just say, oh, yeah, everybody tells me to call Military One Source, but they really have a lot of information. They can put you in connect with counselors that are in your local community, in your county, your city, your state um, free of charge. So a lot of people just really uh, forget what's already out there available to the military but I think now the military is at a point where they have enough military type treatment, you know, our, our hospitals and things like that. But they've also augmented that with the civilian sector and um, other resources to get help where it's it's confidential, because I think that's a big thing is people want to talk to somebody that's confidential and are not going to go back and tell their commander, hey, this is what's going on with Sergeant so and so. They just want that confidentiality and they want to get the help. 
Right. And this is something that many veterans and, and even those of us like you and I that are serving veterans in the support space, um, when, when we hear somebody say, well, we didn't know where to turn or we didn't know what to do or we couldn't find anything, uh, it's almost mind boggling because of the, the sheer number of resources that are out there. And so, um, you know, where, where I've tried to come and it sounds like what you're trying to do with one common bond is, is really shape the conversation and, and change the way that the people in, are thinking and talking about this. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the stigma, active duty, and of course, a, a lot of reserves as well, um, of, uh, you know, people like us don't do things like that, like go to mental health. And, and there's just this, this belief that we have. Um, how do we change that conversation? <coughs> yeah, it's about getting the right people in, um, into the conversation. So when you have your high ranking people that are coming up and sharing, and they're being transparent with issues that they've had. And they're also open to saying, Hey, look, this is not, this doesn't make you weak because, um, I have one lady that she's a widow. She comes forward and she talks about the stigma her husband received when he was in and trying to get care. So having her voice talk about the way her family is dealing with that now has been a such a large impact for me talking to leaders, even to the, to the new privates that come in. Because when they hear her voice and she says she has three little kids that won't know their father, I think it's important that we keep people into the, into the space, you know, that when soldiers, uh, when new events happen and they see somebody like uh, when in the military, we had a couple of uh, two star, a three star that died by suicide. And that really opens up the dialogue where people really realize, hey, this is a this is a bigger problem than we really knew. But um, with at introducing all of those confidential resources, I think people are finally realizing that, hey, I need to get the help and getting help is what's most important. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We actually had uh, Brigadier, John, uh, Brigadier General Don Bolduck on the show. He was the um, uh, former um, uh, Special Operations Command Africa um, commanding general um, who, who very clearly said, you know, me and my, um, you know, senior NCO in my command had to stand up and say, look, this is what you need to do. And, and this is something that, yes, it's it's sometimes effective or it is often very effective when the senior leadership comes up. Um, but even as you said, talking to the young privates and, and really it's those mid-level NCOs. Um, uh, I, I can see, you know, a reservist coming back from demobilization or an active duty service member going through, you know, post-deployment and the commander and the first sergeants walking up and down the hall saying, Hey, you need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody. But yet they're sitting next to that NCO that they've spent the last 12 months of their life with that they're much closer sometimes than with the senior and senior leaders. And that NCO turns to him, say, you better not, you better not say anything. It's good for them to say their career is okay. It's easy for them, but it's that first line leader that's often blocking um, even themselves, their peers, but definitely their subordinates. Yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, when you go to, for those that go to combat, you, you go down there and when you're in that space, you have your brothers and sisters in arms are right there near you. And you guys kind of all experience the same thing. So let's say, um, you know, there's, there's injury. Somebody dies by an IED attack or something like that, that if you're the, if you're closer to that soldier, then you're going to deal with it differently than, <clears throat> than those who weren't. So the issue is that you cannot try to equate your um, level of grief with someone else's. And we all go through grief differently and, and what we all have different levels of resilience as well. So even though, uh, like when I was in desert storm, I saw pits with hundreds of bodies in them that we had to bury. And, 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 um, just for our sanitary reasons where we were located, we had to do that. And we didn't have time to really process what we just saw. It was like, we need to do this as part of our mission and go on with it. And now some of my battle buddies that I was with, they saw that and that just, did something in their brain where they weren't able to function. We had to send a couple of folks home. I was able to go through and, and finish up our tour and I was perfectly fine. So um, not everyone goes through the experiences the same. So I like the process when you make every single person, you go through those stops and you talk to people, everyone will talk to chaplain and everyone will talk to a counselor and there's nobody that's, that's exempt from that. That way you don't feel like, okay, he's the person that's going to get help. So he's, he must be the weak link. Um, if everybody has to go through that process, which is what the military is doing now, um, when they, when they return from deployments, 
it makes it um, like a level playing field. So you don't feel that shame of, of reaching out and getting help. Uh, that's absolutely true. I recall um, coming back from Iraq and or well, my first Iraq tour in 2007 was very different than coming back from my Afghanistan tour in 2010, right? You know, it was, um, again, it was very common for people. And even as you said, senior NCOs or senior leaders now, um, you know, they were junior enlisted in 2001, right? Of course, we're, we're coming up on, you know, 19 years, of course, of, of this, this conflict. And so, um, you know, an entire generations of service members, majority of them know nothing but a, a wartime military. Um, and so it's one of these things of, of trying to understand that your experience is unique to you and your experience isn't common to everybody. But one of the challenges that I see, especially in military transition, and you transitioned out of the military yourself um, fairly recently, I got out in 2014, um, we're not doing that on transition. We're not addressing the the mental health and wellness of service members um, through the transition process. And you know as well as I do, just changing from one culture to another can be challenging. Um, and what we're doing in post-deployment, we're not doing for the military transition. Yeah, absolutely. That is a huge gap um, that we see. And even um, uh, we retired, so that that's one level of transition. But you have a lot of people with uh, the military, that active duty, that transition into reserve component because they still want to be in the military and they think, oh, I'll go do the reserves. It's going to be easy. And then they get there and realize, what, I don't have medical, I don't have uh, a meal card, I don't have, the, I mean, the, the benefits just really shrink down to minimal for what you receive in active duty. So even that transition is drastic. So teaching them how to be civilians, teaching them how to, to be embraced into that civilian culture, what do you say? Like, you, we don't go to, most people don't call it the latrine or or different things that we say in the military. The terms, I'm, I'm still... Good thing I work with the military because I can still use those terms. But, um, you know, you know, when you're in a, in a civilian, strictly civilian audience, they don't understand what you're talking <laughs> about half of the time. So it really is a, a, a culture shock. So it does take a bit of transition. And that's why I like having those different agencies out there to kind of keep you connected. Um, like the team red, white and blue. They have the, the events if you want to stay physically active or go do something. But we really encourage people to get connected with other people that have like minds so that you can still have that sense of camaraderie. Cause I think that's one of the biggest things that soldiers miss is that, that camaraderie that you, you build with the military that, that really haven't found any place out that that can compare to what we, we have in the military. And then you run into a, a rather unique challenge again, as far as reservists is, um, you know, yes, in, in Colorado along the front range, there's lots of different organizations to connect with. But again, going back to, to the young soldier that I talked to, uh, National Guard in Southern Kansas, he said, we don't have any of that. There, there is no wounded warrior. He said the only wounded warrior program is when they come and they bring people to our place to hunt. It's not like we actually have, um, you know, uh, organizations in in, in, you know, rural California or, you know, Montana or things like that is. And so there's just geographically isolating, but also, you know, military culturally isolating. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have um, certain pockets of my, my soldiers that are in different areas for some reason up in, uh, I, I do a map of all the issues that the um, incidents that come in. So if we have a report of a, a ideation or a gesture or a death, I just put a little spot on a map. Some areas we'll see big clusters where there's lots of incidents and then I'll reach out and try to find out what's in that community to cover them. And there's really nothing there. Uh, like in our, our Ohio and Pennsylvania um, units that are there, they really don't have a large support. Whereas our folks in North Carolina, of course they have a, a wealth of, of supporters and military activities to be engaged in. So I think it's very important that each um, community at the, both the community, city, and state level have active VA departments. They have active um, ways for soldiers to stay engaged. And and a lot of my my peers that, that got out and, and were kind of missing something, they just went out and they started something. So um, I always encourage people, hey, if you haven't found what you're looking for, maybe you need to be the one to start it. Maybe you need to be the one to spearhead it and, and, and do it because if you're feeling that way, other people in your community are probably feeling the same way. So it's important that we stay connected with our military brothers and sisters. 
No, I think that's a great point. A, a colleague of mine, Eddie Lazary, he got out um, right after 05, early on. He he did one combat tour, uh, and then he went home to New Hampshire, uh, and and he found he was like there was nothing here. He was like there. And even he, um, in many ways, very deliberately denied his veteranness, um, and dove back into, you know, non-veteran culture. And, and he realized for a very long time that that's what he was missing. Um, I really like that. The idea of looking around and seeing what's there, because that's a critical step. Because <laughs> again, to be honest here in Colorado Springs, everybody is building something and, and everybody's, I mean, we're duplicating efforts like crazy, but if you go 90 miles away, um, they have zero, right? So it's either a, an embarrassment of riches or, or a total gap in services. So this idea of look around and see what's there. If something's there, jump in and lend a hand. If nothing's there, then build it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we see that a lot here at Fort Bragg. Um, yeah, not because sure. it's, it's, uh, actually the, the meeting I had just prior to you was talking to another gentleman who does various things for the veterans and, and everything he said, I was like, hmm. We have that. We ha I'm like, okay, that's great. It's another person doing duplicate work, but that's okay. Cause you know, not, it's not a one size fits all for everything, but, um, I do think it's important, um, to, to know what's available out there because, um, not everybody, we don't necessarily need everybody to be, um, trainers or we don't need everybody that's doing housing. There's so many things just when we identify gaps, that's what, that's where you make the most impact. So that, that's, that's really the, I mean, and it's, Everything I do is military. The stuff that I did when I was working in the op shop and my colonel was telling me, you do this, do that, do this. And I'm like, okay. And all that analysis and stuff I hated doing, I do it now still in my <laughs> civilian work and in my, my nonprofit because it works. It's there for a reason. You, you identify what gaps you have and then you see if you can fill those gaps so that we can, you know, support the whole. So those military skills are still at work and, and they will be <laughs> forever. <laughs> Now, I'm curious to hear how the work that you're doing is received among other veteran organizations. Um, you know, sometimes one thing that I've, I've experienced, especially if this, um, you know, a, a large number of resources that are available, um, sometimes people can believe that, that, you know, their solution is the solution and, you know, all the veteran needs is whatever I do, um, that there's not a lot of collaboration. How have you seen, your discussion about um, mental health, wellness, resiliency, suicide prevention um, teamed up with other organizations in your area or even nationally that are um, that are addressing other veteran needs. Yeah. So with me, um, I'm 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 a big believer in having collaboration and bringing together communities. So within Fayetteville, um, the community, the, the other agencies that are here, they're, they've embraced me. They don't, it's not a competitive type culture or anything like that. We just, um, see what the need is. I, I know that within here, there are other people that are training classes, but I also know that there's nobody else that are doing certain things that I identified with, with the reserve component specifically. And, um, just being able to get out there and partner with them helps out a lot. I do an event um, once a year called Connect North Carolina. This year, it's actually going to be in Fayetteville, where we bring together agencies that that help promote health and wellness. So we bring you in if you if you're somebody that helps with the physical, the spiritual, emotional, or social aspect of life in general. We want you to come together, and they have we have what starts out with an expo um, time where all these agencies come into the room. They set up their tables and they talk about what they do, what they provide to veterans and to the community. And not only uh, the good thing about it this year is um, we, we've been we're compartmentalized here. So you have um, if you've ever been to Fort Bragg, it's it's maybe four little cities and they all have their own little mayor and their own thing. And each of those cities are they're doing their own thing. So what I tell uh, like the meeting I just went to today is, is he's like, hey, we need to do a suicide prevention whatever thing. And I was like, Oh, that's great. When are you trying to do it? Well, he's doing it the exact same time I'm doing mine. And I was like, how about we come together, we all get our schedules out and find out what we're doing. So we're not doing a million suicide prevention things in, in one week when we can spread things out throughout the course of the year, you know, so we, but they're good about that. We're uh, in these events when we do them, our, um, our participants are, are large. They're, they're very diverse. And then when they come into the room, they're learning, oh, this lady um, has this one common bond. They, they can help me after, like with grief. 
But over here, you have these folks that can help me with support groups because I don't necessarily do support groups, but I can connect you to support groups. And then you have this group over here that uh, is their counselor. So they're trying to get you before that time. So we, we bring everybody in there to kind of help build you up with that resilience so that it doesn't get to the point of suicide. But if it does, that's where I step in and I'm there to support for after the post-mention portion. See, and that's great. Definitely the idea of uh, collaboration, not competition, uh, because uh, no one organization can do all of this um, because that is the VA, right? And, and even the VA recognizes its own limitations. Um, and, and like you said, and, and I am, um, to be honest, familiar with Fayetteville. I served three years in the 82nd back in the late 90s. Um, and so even Fort Bragg itself or even pockets of Fort Bragg are uh, insular and, and don't really communicate either with different units and other sides of the post. Um, you know, but then there's something else beyond just the, um, beyond just the collaboration in, in high resource rich areas. Uh, that's where you're starting to do. You, you had mentioned before we started talking about online training to reach those individuals that does not have, um, this, this, these resources, right? You know, the central mountain regions in Colorado, or, you know, there's a lot of resources in North Carolina if you're close to the coast, but if you're up in Asheville in the mountains, um, there's likely less, right? And so, um, one common bond is starting some online training, you said, um, coming up here pretty quick, uh, to be able to reach some of those. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was a, that's something that's really been, uh, my main focus for the past couple of years now, realizing that we can't get to, our remote soldiers even. And, and it's very costly when we have to reserve component. When we do classes, we bring you into a location. We train you for two days and then we send you home. Each one of those classes is about $25,000. So when you look at our economy and how we're scaling down on lots of things, um, that's something that they're looking at saying, hey, is there a way for you guys to do this without um, bringing flying people into these locations for two days and then flying them home? So that's where um, I know the Army does not want to do an online training. I've, I've been trying to push the idea for several years now, and I keep getting shut down. So I said, well, I know I have another route. So that, that's what the One Common Bond is doing, where we have the 4R training. It's um, an advanced suicide intervention training to teach you the skills to do that intervention. Also teaches you how to, to do those research on resources. Um, and that's something that I wanted to push out to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to get it. Specifically, those family members, if you're in a home and you see and notify and you see and identify that there's something wrong, I want you to have the skills to know what to do. Um, and that's what the whole point of this, the, the training is. And it's it's not a very, very long course. When I teach this in the classroom setting, it's a four hour training. Um, so it's it's very it's it's compact. You do a lot of role play, a lot of video videos and yet vignettes that you have to work through. But it's a, it's a good course and I tailor it. I've done different ones to, for different audiences up to eight hours. So, um, basically we're taking that eight hour course, streamlining it down to where you can go online and take it at your own time, at your own pace. It's a modular based training and, um, you can, you can go ahead and do that without having to worry about, you know, childcare or getting off time off of work. You can take it, you know, in the comfort of your home whenever it's most convenient to you. You know, it's interesting that you say the military is going away from or or resistant to online training, right? And I imagine some of that is just the culture of um, you don't have that senior NCO walking around making sure that Joe ain't sleeping, right? And go stand up against the wall. I mean, this and not being able to sign in. And so there's this level of accountability. Um, you know, that's sort of my first take. Why why do you think the the military is um, resistant to that type of uh, delivery of this information? Um, I think specifically for suicide prevention is that they don't want someone to be in a crisis at that moment and not have somebody that can support them. Um, so like with this class, what we do is the very first, the, the very first module says, here's the number to the crisis hotline. Here's the number to, um, to th these are the, the steps to take if you're going through crisis as you go through this course so that we put that disclaimer out there right early with links that people can click on so that if, they, if they're feeling distressed or they're feeling a certain way, they can go ahead and get the help. Um, in the in the five years I've been teaching suicide prevention constantly, I have had several people in my class that have come up to me and said, hey, you know what, um, I'm dealing with issues or hey, I, just, I have a family member that's dealing with this type of issue and I'm always there to support them. Um, 
but I always tell them, Hey, look, if I'm not available, here's, here's numbers too. So my, even my business card has a crisis hotline on there. So I think that's what they're reluctant to, to, to going online. But what I, um, I've told my leaders is, Hey, we have to get into the culture and the way that they learn now. Um, my, my eight year old kid down the street, he, he's online training, you know, that our college students right now, they're doing things online. So let's meet them in the way that they're used to learning right now. And that's how they're used to learning is online with really cool avatars and interaction and things like that. And I think we just need to give it as an option. Maybe not the only way. Sure. Let's do the face to face thing, but let's make an option out there for those who just can't get to that classroom. You know, I think that's very critical and, and that's a, that's a much less cynical reason to avoid it than mine, of course. Um, but this idea of reaching people in the way that they, they want to hear it and they need to hear it. There was a, um, a study that came out at the beginning of last year that looked at 4,000 post 9-11 veterans, uh, and over 50% of, of post 9-11s were comfortable accessing mental health information, um, through technology. Um, whether you have, you know, uh, suicide intervention apps or, um, the the crisis hotline went to text base and and you know online chat. Um, what we're doing here, as far as uh, podcasts and blogs and uh, psych armor, is is significantly uh, supportive of this kind of thing. Um, and so you're right. This idea of it doesn't matter um, how they get the information; it just matters that they get the information. Absolutely, yeah. So that so that. The, those cases that I read of those, those wives that, um, it just happened to be these ones were all wives that knew their husbands were dealing with issues and they didn't know how to get them help. This could have been a resource that can help. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to push towards is where I don't want another wife to say, I didn't know, you know, so, so this training is being offered free of charge to, to any military family member or military affiliated. And there is a cost for, um, civilians that want to take the class, but it's a very minimal cost, $25 to take a really, um, informative online training where there's really not that opportunity out there. Um, so this is, this is why I wanted to push it out to make sure that our military members receive what they need. And it's, it's, it's not just tailored to the military. So there's modules for specifically for military. If you're not a, a military person, you want to take the course and you can just skip that module and you're still going to get the same effect. But I just wanted to make sure that I reached the, the target audience that I see has the biggest need. And that's our, our military family members and our reserve component, National Guard, that don't really get around the military um, very often. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and again, yet another way to connect um back to that military culture to get some of that familiarity um, that that many service members feel the lack of whenever they leave. Um, this has been great, Kimberly. I want to give you an opportunity to, um, you know, if somebody wants to reach out and, and, you know, find you online, one common bond, how can they get a hold of you, social media, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the, the military or the, the one common bond is, is www.one. That's the number one commonbond.org. And that's where you can go to, to find out about our postvention efforts. You'll see a picture of all of the grief care packages that we send out because that's one of our large things that we do is we send out a grief care package which has um, the leading book on grief, a journal, a pen, we send a condolence card, as well as anything that might be specific to that family. If it's a suicide, we put a booklet in there that talks about suicide. And I'm happy to announce that my my mother and I have just finished our own um, publication to, to add to those that speaks specific to suicide because that's a, a whole nother level of loss. Um, and then not only do we send out that package, well, what, another thing that we do is we continue to support that family throughout the year. So as Mother's Day and Father's Day are coming up pretty soon, we send out cards to families that we know that this is their first year of loss. We send cards out on, on the anniversary date of your loss just so that you know somebody's thinking about you because I think it's important for your grief process to, to remember that, hey, you're not alone in this. Um, so that's the, the www.onecommonbond.org. And on that link, you, it has links to our other, uh, to our training. We have lots of resources for, um, just informative type, um, documents you can download. It also will tell you about our connect events, which we do here in North Carolina. Um, and those are the events where we bring in those expo tables and have people talk about what services they provide that can help you, um, just have a whole life. All those links are on our webpage. Our email is one, the same number one, common bond at gmail.com. That's the number one common bond altogether at gmail.com. 
Okay, I'll make sure that all of those uh, are, are in the show notes and, and that people will be able to, to access those. Um, any last thoughts before we sign off here? Um, no, I just thank you for the opportunity. The biggest thing uh, with what we do is exposure. So um, typically what happens is we hold an event or we do something and then maybe about a month later, somebody will say, hey, I need to order one of those packages because I just had a friend that died or, and it's not just suicide. It can be cancer. It can be, you know, anything that someone passes away. It's a grief care pro- pro- product because we want to make sure that as you go on your grief journey, you're not alone. That's, that's the motto of one common bond. That's, uh, that's great, Kimberly. I really appreciate, uh, and not just coming on the show today, but for the work that you're doing. It's outstanding. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to do it. <laughs> You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As you can tell by this episode, you don't have to be a mental health professional to do something about veteran mental health. Kimberly found it her calling, of course, after losing her brother and seeing it impact so many service members. You don't need a degree to do something, you just need to be educated and get the skills necessary to intervene. One point that I'd like to bring out from this episode, Kimberly and I talked about the duplication of services. She brought up a good point. Not everyone is going to need the same thing or get it from the same organization. If an agency is providing the same service for the same population in the same area, that's a problem. It is better that they collaborate and cooperate rather than exist in competition. If an agency is providing the same service for a different population, however, that's okay. I recently had the privilege of spending some time with the Marine Recon and Sniper Foundation. A similar organization, the EOD Warrior Foundation, is providing support for former Explosive Ordnance Disposal team members. Both of them are providing a similar service, but for different populations. A recon marine may be hesitant to reach out for help to anyone but another recon marine, and a former EOD troop may not reach out to anyone other than another EOD team member. Similarly, providing different services to the same population, such as the differentiation between the Travis Mannion Foundation, which is helping veterans find meaning and purpose through youth education, and the mission continues, which is helping veterans find meaning and purpose through community engagement, is also totally okay. The challenge is when multiple organizations are trying to solve veteran homelessness, for example, in the same location with the same goals, that's when we need to collaborate. I just ask that you consider that as you are working with the resources for service members, veterans, and families in your local area. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST120. Our thanks this month go to Given Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. Don't forget, we'll be joining them for the week to change direction from June 9th to June 15th. If you want to see how you can too, go to ChangeDirection.org. A Week to Change Direction will happen anywhere and everywhere people and organizations want to be part of this change. Given Hour will provide toolkits with suggestions and ideas for how you or your organization can participate in A Week to Change Direction, or you can create your own. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests or go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. Check it out. Go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. Something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Oh, I try so hard.
gave every shred, every last thread of my identity. Conquer my fragility, eliminate the enemy, deliver me, God, from temptation. Tell me that this life is just a matrix. Need a facelift, back to basics. Vision six. I only feel alive when I hear the bass kick. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.